Thanks, Hannah. Okay, uh, I'm going to ask you guys to join me one more time to, to pray before we uh, hear from God in His Word. Father, uh, we, we need to hear from you in your Word. Um, we just need to hear from you in your Word, to speak to us through your Word. Your Word is uh, living and active. It's able to um, speak to not just our minds, but to our hearts. So I ask that you would do that through your word and through me today, for your people and for the glory of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. So we're in chapter 27 of Matthew, and we've been in Matthew for a good while now. Um, it's been a few years, actually. We're in the second last chapter of Matthew. Um so we're nearly at the end, and uh, I want to say that this and next week's message, they form a pair, which is why we read a couple of verses from, uh, you know, 24 to 26, uh, but primarily we'll be in verses 1 to 10 today, and these two messages that are today and next Sunday, they're going to work together as a pair to form, number one, a very severe warning, but also a great comfort. So this week we're going to look at the warning, um, and next week we're going to look at the comfort. And for that reason, I want to encourage you to be here for both, or at least listen to it through the podcast, because um, your understanding of this passage will be incomplete otherwise. But um, I want to say a little thing about warnings before we get into it. Uh, the problem with warnings today, because uh, there is a problem with with warnings today, uh, and here's how I want to illustrate it. Um, I was flying, I've been flying for um, the last few weeks uh, all around Europe with my wife. Uh, we've been on holiday. Uh, last week, we were flying to the UK from Spain, and as, as we were taking off, they gave the standard, you know, put all of your devices on airplane mode uh, warning, and you guys have heard that before, and you know, that's the moment where you take out your phone and you kind of swipe and you put on airplane mode and maybe your tablet or your device. So we did all of that. Um, and at the same time, uh, just across from us, there was a young woman who was video calling her boyfriend. And multiple flight attendants came up to her and they asked her to stop. Um, didn't stop. Eventually, the lady sitting right next to us uh, got so annoyed that she got up and then she went over to her and she gave her a piece of her mind, didn't do anything. Right? Warnings from the flight attendant, warnings from this aggravated lady next to us. Um, and she video called her boyfriend all the way up until we were up in the air. Her screen froze and she lost reception. Right? That says something about how valuable warnings are today, I, I don't think they're very valuable. You know, whether it's a warning to put your device on airplane mode, um, which I'm not e sure it even does much of anything, or a warning that, you know, smoking kills, a warning that you shouldn't use your phone while you're driving, and then you look up while you're driving, <laughs> and you see that sign. You know, warnings don't carry much value today, and I think it's because we hear warnings in a certain tone, like a shrill 
harsh tone of voice, a legalistic tone of voice. Or maybe it's because we hear warnings and we feel like we've heard them before. So they don't, just, they don't really hit. They kind of go right over our heads. We don't pay attention. And today Matthew gives us a warning. And it's a really severe one. And I want to ask you, um, today of all days, really try to listen to what this warning is. And the warning is this, to reject Jesus is to reject God's innocent king, and that rejection carries God's condemnation. All right, to reject Jesus is to reject God's innocent king, and to reject Jesus carries God's condemnation. And rejecting this king, um, it doesn't always look so obvious. Maybe you, you hear me say that, and you think of, you know, some really hostile person who's persecuting Christians or the church. It doesn't always look that obvious. You could be sitting here today in church rejecting this innocent king. So don't let this warning just go over your head. Really listen to it. Examine it and examine yourself. That's all I would ask of you today. And this warning comes to us through the examples of three uh, people. The first is Judas. The second is the chief priests, and the third is Pilate. And in each of these examples, we're going to see uh, two things that are stressed. First of all, the innocence of Jesus, but also the guilt of those who hand him over. So first of all, Judas, right? Judas's guilt and the innocence of Jesus the King. And this is probably the most well-known and obvious person who's guilty. Like you hear that, that name Judas and immediately uh, it brings up connotations of, you know, that guy who stabbed Jesus in the back. Um, if you remember a few sermons ago, we, I talked about how no one really names, you know, their children Judas in, in, in church. because It's just not a pleasant name uh, to go with. So we're reading about Judas today, first of all. And verses 3 to 4 show clearly that he is guilty. That's what it says. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I sin by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. So we know that Judas is this nefarious betrayer. He sold out Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. But then he says, as we read here, outright, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And this is what that means. First of all, this is, is Jesus' betrayer speaking. So if Jesus' betrayer says that Jesus is innocent, that's what he means when he says innocent blood, that's pretty strong. Right? Because Judas, of all people, wants to show that Jesus is guilty. He sold him out. Right? He feels a conflict, a tension in his conscience. But he can't deny, not even he can deny, that he has rejected and betrayed an innocent king. Very clear. Judas is guilty. Jesus is innocent. But secondly, um, second example is this. The chief priests are guilty. And the king is innocent. 
and that's not hard to pick up either. Very plainly in verses 1 to 2, um, you know, we read about how the chief priests, they bound Jesus up and they handed him over to Pilate. Uh, and these men were, if you don't know, the chief priests were the leaders of Israel. They were uh, the spiritual leaders. Think of them as the pastors of Israel. Um, and they take it upon themselves to arrest this innocent man, right, the, the king, the prophesied king of their people, and to have him killed. But here's, here's what's uh, really interesting. Judas comes back to them and he's regretful. He's remorseful. He's, he throws down the 30 pieces of silver that they paid him to hand Jesus over and he hangs himself. And then the chief priests, they take that money and they go and buy a field. Why do they do that? Verses 6 to 8. But the chief priest taking the piece of silver said, It is not lawful to put them into the treasury, since it is blood money. So they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore that field has been called the field of blood to this day. See, so by this field, it's called the field of blood. Why do they do this? This is why. They call it blood money, right? And what that means is they know that they have betrayed innocent blood. And so they cannot use this money for religious purposes. They can't use it to improve the temple or support the priests. So instead, knowing that it's blood money, they go out and they buy a field which becomes known as the field of blood or the field of uncleanness, a burial place for strangers. So you can clearly see here that, you know, the chief priests, they're guilty. We know that. But even they, even they know that this king is innocent. Third example, Pilate's guilt and an innocent king. Finally, in verses 24 to 26, jumping ahead a bit, we see Pilate's guilt and the innocence of Jesus. Uh, read with me, verses 24 to 26. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and he washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus delivered him to be crucified. So Pilate um, is the governor. He's the judge. He's got the political authority to have Jesus released. And instead of declaring that Jesus is innocent, what does he do? What do we just read here? He declares that he is innocent. Right? He doesn't talk about Jesus' innocence. He talks about his innocence. He washes his hands of the whole thing declares himself innocent of responsibility. And then he releases Barabbas and delivers Jesus to be crucified. Uh, I don't know if you remember um, much of what you learnt uh, early high school, maybe late primary school. I know it's really hard for most of us to think back that far. Um, you know, one of the first equations they give you is something uh, like, it'll be up here, um, if x equals 4 and x plus y equals 5, what is y? I, I know we're not all like lovers of maths, but I, th I think this is 
pretty straightforward. If x equals 4 and x plus y equals 5, what is y? Y is, come on guys, yes, 1. x plus y equals 5, what is y? So um, the reason I'm, reason I'm bringing up that very simple mass equation is, uh, here's the equation for us. Here's what the whole, whole text is kind of yelling at us today. If x is innocent and y knowingly condemns innocent x to death, then what is y? The answer is guilty. Right? Y is guilty. Jesus is innocent. The whole chapter cries that out. We've seen that. Judas himself says Je Jesus is innocent. The chief priests, by their actions, calling it blood money, buying this field of uncleanness, they declare Jesus' innocence. Pilate declares it and then declares himself innocent. Jesus is innocent, but Judas and the chief priests and Pilate, they're all guilty. And so to reject Jesus is to reject the innocent king. And you can do that in a variety of ways. Right? It doesn't all look like absolute hostility. It can look different. But w what's the result of that? Well, we said it was condemnation, God's condemnation. Um, because... You know, at this point, you might be wanting to say to me, okay, so what? Right? I've, you've told me about this warning. It's, it's still not quite hitting home. So what? And we're going to apply this in just a moment. Uh, but there's one little thing that we need to touch on in the text. And you'll find that in verses 8 to 9. Um, sorry, 8 to 10. I'm going to read it again. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. So in verse 9 it says, Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. And you know, when you see those words or that phrase, uh, you immediately need to know that uh, Matthew here is talking about an Old Testament prophecy. And this prophecy uh, has been confusing for a lot of people because Matthew says that it's from the prophet Jeremiah, but when you flip to Jeremiah, you can't really find this prophecy. You can't really find uh, like any text that resembles this in its fullness. And that's because this prophecy is actually a mixture of Jeremiah and Zechariah. Uh, and both the prophecies, they speak of God's utter condemnation. So Jeremiah speaks of the shedding of innocent blood in Jerusalem, and then speaks of God's judgment and condemnation on his people for doing it. So I just want to read for you Jeremiah 19, verses 4 and 11. Because the people have forsaken me, and have profaned this place by making offerings in it to other gods, whom neither they nor their fathers nor the kings of Judah have known. And because they have filled this place with the blood of innocence, and verse 11, so will I break this people and this city as one breaks a potter's vessel so that it can never be mended. 
you know, um, you can you can hear kind of echoes of what Matthew has referred to, but not its fullness. You you know, you hear talk of blood and a potter's field, um, but you need to hear Zechariah in order to kind of bring all of this together. So Zechariah speaks specifically of thirty pieces of silver, right? That's really clear, and speaks of God um, doing something pretty intense. Zechariah 10.10 And I took my staff favor, and I broke it, annulling the covenant that I had made with all the peoples. It speaks of God annulling his covenant with his people. That's pretty strong. God breaking his covenant with his people. It's a serious... How's that? And Matthew, by... Inserting these two prophecies together, right, of God's utter condemnation of those who spill innocent blood in a city, and the result of that being the breaking of his covenant with his people, it's showing us just how serious this is. That Judas, the chief priest, and Pilate conspired to put Jesus, this innocent king, to death. See, on one hand, we have the utterly guilty who condemn themselves uh, in, in Judas, the chief priest, and even Pilate. And on, on the other hand, we have, we've got this utterly innocent king without sin. If you remember um, a couple chapters back, uh, Jesus is sitting with his disciples uh, at a table and is enjoying his final meal with them. And at that meal, we heard Jesus calling his blood, the blood of the new covenant, right? In the last supper, that he's the spotless Passover lamb who takes away the guilt of sin. And, you know, we talked about what is sin today, right? That it's rebelling against God, that is breaking his law. And the result of that is death and the disintegration uh, of all creation. But um, here's another result or another consequence um, that I think sums that up and I want to share with you today. Uh, what is the result of sin? The result of sin is this distance, this gap between you and God. And I don't know if you feel that sitting here today. Do you feel a distance? Do you feel a gap? between you and God, that no matter what you do, how hard you try, you can't breach it. You can't bring it together. That is a result of sin. You know, the most stark warning I ever received in my life was from university uh, many years ago when they sent me a letter that said, if you fail another subject, um, we're going to kick you out. And I had failed a lot of subjects up until that point. Um, and I had not really taken study very seriously. But when I got that letter, um, I had a choice. I was like, okay, I actually take what this says seriously. And I pass my subjects or I just let it go over my head and live as if it's not really a problem. Just keep doing what I'm doing. Um, and then you know, we'll see what happens. 
How do you hear this warning? That to reject Jesus is to reject God's innocent king. And rejection carries with it God's condemnation. How do you hear that warning? Do you hear it seriously? Or does it just go over your head? Do you feel like you've heard it so many times that it doesn't matter? Here's Judas. Judas is a guy who gets a lot of bad rap, but um, I want to remind you that he's someone who walked with Jesus. He lived with him. He ate with him. He was taught by him. Just a couple of nights earlier, he had supper with him. He put his hand into the same bowl as Jesus. He is one of Jesus' 12 closest disciples. But something got into Judas, and he decided it was better not to walk with Jesus. So don't you think for a moment that just because you're here, because you've been going to church your whole life, that you are not rejecting Jesus? There will be people in a gathering just like this who will find themselves saying, well, I'm, I'm a follower. But nothing much else in your life reflects a real following, a real discipleship to Jesus. And it's not enough to have remorse. Judas had a lot of remorse. He had so much remorse that he hanged himself. It's not enough to have remorse if you don't actually repent because he doesn't come back to Jesus. Remember Peter? Uh, He denied Jesus three times. And what you find at the very end of this gospel is he's there uh, with the ten other disciples. He's back at the feet of Jesus. He's repented. But Judas does not. He just hangs himself. It's not enough to have remorse if you don't actually repent. That's Judas. And then there's Pilate. Pilate is the hopeless fence sitter. Are you sitting on the fence today? He knows Jesus is innocent. He knows that he is righteous. That is the innocent king, and he does nothing about it. He's uh, what you would call in modern day terms agnostic. He just washes his hands of responsibility of Jesus. And you can live like that today. You can say, I believe that God is real. I believe that Jesus came and he died for sinners without much of a real care in your soul. You can live like that. And then we have the chief priests who have plotted and schemed from the very beginning. These are the Richard Dawkins of the world. If you don't know Richard Dawkins, he's a prominent atheist. He wrote a book called The God Delusion. Debates a lot of Christian um, apologists. Very aggressive. Very disdainful for people who profess any belief in God. Determined to rid the world of Jesus. Uh, We have people like that in our world too. And Matthew shows us an event in history, a real event in history, where God breaks covenant with his people. I don't like, do you know how big that, do do you know how serious that is? 
it's a real warning for us. And at the same time, here's the offer. And it's a person, it's Jesus. And what you have to realize is, in all this talk of guilt, the innocent king, the perfect lamb of God, who take, takes away the sin of the world, and we're going to see this next week, he goes to the cross. And he spills his blood instead of guilty Barabbas, so that sinners... Sinners can be made right before God and return to Him. That gap that you might be feeling today between you and God, that distance, don't be apathetic about it. Don't just be remorseful about it. To repent means to come back to Him. Here's the warning. If you reject Jesus by remorse, without repentance, or by agnosticism, sitting on the fence, or by atheism, you know, outwardly putting him to death, as it were. You will not stand, you cannot stand before the condemnation and the judgment of God. But if you side with Jesus, the innocent king who died, to shed the blood of the new covenant, then God's precious promise of grace and favor, it's not just for his people anymore, his historic people, Israel. It's for people from every nation, every tribe, every race. That's actually available to you. And this gap that you, this unbridgeable gap that you have between you and God can be bridged and you can know him and it is the greatest gift it's the greatest privilege it's the greatest joy to be intimate with your creator that you could ever know and we're going to hear more about that next week but today uh, heed this warning. Right? It's not just a airplane warning. If you reject Jesus, you're rejecting God's innocent king and you're heaping condemnation upon yourself. Let's pray. Father, uh, well we thank you that you warn us. Thank you that you love us um, enough to care where we are. And your warnings uh, go hand in hand with a promise of grace in Christ. And so, Lord, I just pray for all of us here today. Lord, I pray that this warning in your word uh, this warning of rejecting Jesus, the innocent King, the condemnation that comes about as a result of that. I pray that that warning would honestly um, shake us to the core. I pray that it would shake us awake. It would sober us. And ultimately, it would lead us back in repentance to you.
Remorse is not enough. Emotions are necessary, and we all have them, but Lord, lead us back to you. Bring us to true repentance that we may find intimacy and reconciliation and relationship with you, our God. In your name we pray. Amen.